This is the historical Halloween special. The veil is thin and the dead walk among us. Before you indulge in some tricks or treats, enjoy this episode and decide whether Lizzie Borden really took an axe to give her mother 40 wax. My dearest listeners, happy Halloween. I hope you're having a spooky fun day. I've returned to you for our annual historical Halloween special because I believe that Halloween is sacred to our podcaster-listener relationship. And whoa, today's subject is a doozy. There are many creepy children's nursery rhymes, but perhaps none so disturbing as the infamous Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Most of us first hear the macabre tale of Lizzie Borden by way of this rhyme. The image of the buttoned-up Victorian axe murderess splattered in blood is also a common image for ghoulish decorations and costumes around Halloween. But have you ever stopped and wondered, who was Lizzie Borden and what really happened? Buckle up, dear listeners. We're going on a journey to 1892 Fall River, Massachusetts to separate fact from fiction. I will warn you that you're going to be tearing your hair out by the end with the absurdity of it all, but we'll get to that. Also note that we're talking about an axe murder, so some details will be a bit gory. Prepare thyself. For now, imagine yourself returning home on a sweltering August morning to find the lifeless body of your father surrounded by a pool of his own blood. Chapter 1. This house is haunted. Okay, not haunted by a ghost, but the Bordens were haunted people. Lizzie's father, Andrew Jackson Borden, yes, he was named after our very racist president, was born in 1822 to a family of modest means. However, he was related to other Bordens in the area, we're talking like 125 Borden families in Fall River, Massachusetts, they were all very wealthy and influential in the rich people society of Gilded Age Fall River. And just a geographical note here, Fall River is about 50 miles outside of Boston. He married Sarah Anthony Morse on Christmas Eve of 1845, and the two went on to have three daughters, Emma, Alice, and Lizzie. Alice died at just two years old of dropsy of the brain. So that sounds real pleasant. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born in 1860. Her elder sister, Emma, was 10 years old at the time. Just three years later, Lizzie's mother died at the age of 39. And this is a weird old-timey doctor note. Uterine congestion. Cancer is what I would guess from that, but it sounds like her uterus had a cold and medical history is wild. So now you've got Andrew left to raise a 13-year-old and a three-year-old. This was definitely a time in history in which the man folk had little to do with raising children. So we can imagine he was a bit overwhelmed by this. He went in search of a wife and found a spinster from a prominent local family that had lost all their money. Her name was Abby Durfee Gray, and she was a cool 38 years old. It wasn't a love match by any means. It was solely a companionship slash please raise my daughter's arrangement. Now, I should mention, by this point in the timeline, 1866-ish, Andrew had gone from the school of hard knocks to being a pretty wealthy man with multiple properties. He went into business with a friend, and the two were furniture makers who would deliver their furniture around town with a wheelbarrow, even though, by this point, carriages were plentiful. It was kind of kitschy because even then people understood the value of handmade artisanal wares and their business took off. A little morbid factoid is that they also specialized in the sale of ready-made caskets and would contract with the city to hold bodies in the caskets, like just on their property while they were waiting to move bodies, 
And for this reason, some sources call Andrew an undertaker. He wasn't an undertaker though, just saw a market for caskets like one does. He also invested heavily in real estate and became president of the local bank. So Mr. Borden had quite a bit of money by this point. In fact, it's estimated he had roughly $300,000 at the time of his death. And in today's money, that's about eight or $9 million. Not too shabby. But here's where things start to get weird. Andrew was extremely frugal, like so frugal that he refused to get indoor plumbing or electricity, even though both were very common for rich people of the time and were things that had been around for several decades. He refused and instead made his family continue to use an outhouse and did everything by candlelight. He also kept their house in the industrial part of town instead of moving to the coveted neighborhood, The Hill, which is where all the rich people lived. Not only that, but many of the people who lived in his rental properties would owe like very minor amounts of money, think like pennies, and he would insist that they pay up, but then he had no problem lowering rent for people who had fallen on hard times. Just kind of strange. He wasn't a warm person. He was just very frugal and largely devoid of empathy. Okay, so that's the scene. Now, on Sarah Borden's deathbed, Sarah made Emma promise that she would care for Lizzie like a mother, and Emma was very committed to this promise. She did fill that role for baby Lizzie, and when Abby came along, as you can imagine, teenager plus stepmother, a recipe for cliche disaster. Emma refused to call Abby mother and would consistently point out to Lizzie as she grew up that Lizzie's real mother was dead. The sisters also both believed that Abby had married their father for his money. Let's switch gears a little bit to see what Lizzie was like as a person. In school, her teachers called her aloof, which is code for intensely shy. It was also said that she suffered from extreme mood swings. She had a somewhat close relationship with her dad, like the two really liked to go fishing together, but there wasn't a whole lot of love for her stepmother, whom she called Mrs. Borden. As a young woman, she was very religious. She taught Sunday school and was part of the Christian Endeavor Society, as well as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Those were the people who wanted alcohol outlawed, and their reasons were largely to keep men from getting drunk and beating their wives, which was interesting for me to learn. I just thought it was like, alcohol is the devil situation, but they actually had legit reasons. She was also very involved with animal rescues, and she even was keeping pigeons out in the barn. You're probably like, wow, that's a weird detail. And to that I say, just wait. One other super weird detail is about their maid. They had an Irish immigrant maid named Bridget, but they called her Maggie. And the reason is because their first maid was named Maggie. And they're like, oh, ha ha ha. Isn't it so funny? We call her Maggie. She doesn't mind. Because like, what else is this immigrant going to say? And also they clearly didn't know her real name. Okay, so that's kind of what Lizzie was up to with her life. She's 32 at this point. Remember, Emma is 10 years older and also a spinster. Some people speculate why both sisters remained unmarried, and a lot of it had to do with Andrew. He was too cheap to give the girls money to go socialize with people of their societal class up on the hill, but at the same time would not hear of his daughters marrying anyone beneath their station. So instead, both were just living at home completely isolated. They felt like outcasts. One happy thing did happen for Lizzie. Andrew did pay for her to go with a group of friends to Europe. And while she had the time of her life, it was also this rude awakening. Like, wow, I have been sheltered my whole life by my father's oppressive frugality. Emma did not go because Emma was too painfully shy. When the family was all together at home, they were distant. Lizzie and Emma did not take meals, 
with Andrew and Abby. They didn't even talk to each other beyond acknowledgement when passing in the halls, if that. They each had their own separate lives under the roof of the boarded mansion. Chapter 2. Murder Most Foul In the months leading up to the infamous murders, there were many strange, intense occurrences. First off, there was a series of burglaries around town. Someone had even broken into the Borden's barn. This, and some light shoplifting that Lizzie may have done, it's unclear if this was invented after the murders to further slander her, but that led to the Borden's locking the doors of the house. And I'm not just talking about, like, the front and back door. They would lock their rooms within the house, like, even when they were in it. That is not a sign of a functional family. In 1892, Andrew was about 70 years old. The man must have assumed that it was a good time to get his affairs in order. He gifted property to various members of Abby's family. This was the thing that set the Borden sisters off. They were absolutely incensed that their father, who refused to let them have basic necessities, such as plumbing, would give these valuable properties away to the family of their hated stepmother, and he had not given them anything. Not counting Lizzie's trip abroad, I guess. Anyway, Andrew was like, yeah, you're right, that's not fair. You two can have a house in your name. But the house was not in the fashionable neighborhood they desperately wanted to live in called The Hill. It was in a dangerous part of town, so they didn't feel comfortable going there. Plus, you know, Victorian times, a lady can't live on her own. So they had this house, but felt it was worthless. They rented it out for a time, but ended up selling it back to their father for cash, about $5,000, which is $144,000 in today's money. Next, remember the pigeons that Lizzie had taken on as a project? Well, apparently, Andrew was like, why are we spending money on meat when we've got these pigeons? And so he hacked the heads off of Lizzie's pigeons, and she just found them like that. Some sources say she was grief-stricken as she had viewed them as beloved pets. Others say that her reaction was muted, so she was accepting of it. Regardless, that is the makings of a horror movie right there before we even get to the real murders. All right. Now moving right along to the week of the murders, getting back to Andrew's cheapness, although this sounds more like when you hear stories about people who lived through the Great Depression. So the days leading up to Andrew and Abby's murders, the family had bought mutton and they used every scrap of that mutton. So eating it in every way possible. I'm not going to detail it because I've never had mutton, so I don't even know. And they were leaving the meat out on the stove because, you know, refrigeration wasn't a thing yet. They did have a cold box, but for whatever reason, they're leaving this mutton out. The family got violently ill, like all of them vomiting and sick for days. And to be clear here, Lizzie was sick as well. The day before the main event, Lizzie went to a druggist to pick up prusic acid, which was a common household thing at the time. She told the druggist she wanted it to clean a sealskin cape, but he was like, you don't have a prescription and you're a lady here by yourself, so no, you can't have it. So that was weird, and a tidbit that was not allowed to be admitted to evidence later because the judge said that it was too far outside of the window of the murders. So yeah. That evening, Lizzie's uncle, from her biological mother's side, John Morse, arrived to stay at the house. Andrew had written to him about potentially helping him find some laborers to help with his properties, but this had been months ago, and John Morse happened to show up on this evening. Emma was out of town visiting an elderly relative. Okay, dear listeners, the stage, it has been set. August 4th, 1892. 
Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, and John Morse ate breakfast together and were served by their maid, Bridget Maggie. John Morse and Andrew went to the sitting room and had a conversation that may have been heated, unclear, but so much speculation about this conversation and no one knows what was said. When it was finished, Andrew went for a walk and to work. Abby went upstairs to make the bed and maybe lay down because she was still feeling sick. John Morse had errands to run and went to see another one of his nieces in town. Bridget Maggie was told to clean the outside windows and she's like casually vomiting in the backyard as she's doing this chore because she's still sick and it is a sweltering day. Lizzie is kind of just hanging around bored. She said that she went out into the barn to look for some fishing sinkers. She also hung out in the yard and ate a pear. She might have been reading a magazine. Lots of things that Victorian women who weren't allowed to work could do. Anyway, Andrew came home around 1030, presumably because he was also still feeling sick. Weirdly, his key didn't work in the door and he started banging it. Bridget Maggie went down to open the door. It was jammed and she muttered an obscenity. She testified that after she said the bad word, she could hear Lizzie giggling at her from the top of the stairs. Hold that in your back pocket. Okay, so he comes inside and goes straight for the sofa to take a nap. He's like, okay, it's my lunch break. Let me try to sleep off this sickness. Lizzie told police that she helped him take off his shoes and get settled onto the couch. Then she told Bridget Maggie that there was a sale on ribbon and she should go buy some. But Bridget Maggie is like, no, I still feel sick. I'm going to go take a nap. And she went to her room. At 11.10 a.m., Bridget Maggie heard Lizzie scream and then yell, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. According to Lizzie, she had walked in to find her father hacked to death on the sofa after her little barn adventure. Now, when I say hacked, I mean an eyeball was cut cleanly in two and you could see his brain. His nose was gone. And get this, he was still warm and actively bleeding. Nosy neighbors start to come on by, including Adelaide Churchill from next door who sees the commotion. She opens her window and says, Lizzie, what is the matter? To which Lizzie replies, oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Little bit strange, but shock is a hell of a drug. Mrs. Churchill comes rushing over to comfort Lizzie and everyone is like, has anyone checked the house to see if the intruder is still here? Where is Abby, by the way? Then Lizzie says, well, Abby got a letter to visit a sick friend and she left to go see the friend, but maybe I heard her come home. The family doctor, Dr. Bowen, who had been on a call, came rushing over. He checks to make sure Andrew is dead, and yep, totally dead, what with being hacked apart. Then Dr. Bowen starts looking for clues around the room, which is a bit presumptuous on his part, and also not great because he's walking all over a crime scene. Now, I should mention here, no one at this point has called the police. They're all just freaking out and walking through an active crime scene of which an intruder might still be in the house. Bridget Maggie and Miss Churchill draw the short straw and start to check the house, and they don't even reach the top of the stairs before they see the body of Abby face down in the guest room. At this point, there is such a commotion with neighbors coming over and whatnot that the police just kind of wander over like, hey, what's going on? It turns out that most of the police force were at an amusement park with their families in Rhode Island called Rocky Point. This had even been reported as something that would happen in the newspaper, which was really hard-hitting journalism to announce that 95% of the police force would be gone on a specific day. Okay, so by the time that the police do arrive, Lizzie is calm. 
Dr. Bowen had also been like, hey, here's some morphine so you calm down a bit. The police are like, hmm, very suspicious that you're so calm when your parents have been hacked to death. And she's like, my stepmother, my real mother is dead. So like, I have to interject here. I honestly don't have a theory or opinion on whether or not she did it. But lady, this does not look good. Don't throw kerosene on the fire. So the police search her house. Not well. Like, they mostly didn't check her room because they were like, she's a lady. In the basement, they found several hatchets, which was not weird or unusual. Because in Victorian times, people needed hatchets to live. Firewood and whatnot. One weird thing. There was one hatchet head that had a handle that was freshly broken off. The hatchet head had fresh ash on it, and it was assumed that this was the murder weapon and that the murderer got rid of the handle because it was splattered with blood and then tried to make the axe head look old and muddled with the ash. Anyway, the police didn't take any of this evidence out of the house. They didn't check Lizzie for bloodstains. Then they were like, well, everyone was sick. Let's get these Harvard boys down here to do an autopsy. So they autopsy Andrew and Abby on the freaking dining room table and remove their stomachs for analysis and no poison. The mutton was just bad. Lizzie asks Dr. Bowen to send a telegram to Emma, but she's like, be delicate about it because our old relative may have a heart attack if they tell her the truth. So he sends a telegram that just says to come home. Lizzie, John Morse, who had a very detailed alibi, Bridget Maggie and Lizzie's friend, Alice Russell, all spend the night in the house. The police have since been called back from their fun times and they were stationed around the house. At one point, the police see Lizzie and Alice go into the cellar with a lamp and a pail, but don't investigate or do anything about it. Two days later, the police told Lizzie that she is their main suspect, after which Alice saw Lizzie tearing up a dress. Lizzie is subsequently indicted and arrested. She is denied having her attorney present, and Dr. Bowen is giving her injections of morphine before each interview she gives with police. So yeah, she was very erratic and she gave multiple conflicting testimonies, but also she was on drugs. As you can imagine, this story was sensational and attracted nationwide attention. This headline and its misogyny really cracks me up though. Shocking crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. Poor Abby, he's a venerable citizen and she's an aged wife. She doesn't even have a Wikipedia article. Anyway, women's groups fiercely advocated for Lizzie. Like, hey, women can't be on juries. They can't vote. She should not be tried by a jury of men, which I mean, fair. Then you've got newspapers commenting on how she looks too well-bred and that she lacked Amazonian proportions and was not a brawny, big, muscular, hard-faced coarse girl. So that's cool. Her trial did not take place until almost a year later, June 5th, 1893. One fun feature of the trial was when they brought in the smashed-in skulls of Andrew and Abby. Not knowing this would happen, or even that her parents had been decapitated, Lizzie fainted in the courtroom, which of course made national news. The jury, all men of course, deliberated for 90 minutes and came back with a verdict. Not guilty. Chapter 3 an unsolved mystery. If you're new to Lizzie Bordenland, that might have been news to you. It was to me, but the evidence against her, while compelling, because she was definitely acting suspicious, was all circumstantial. There was also a hearty helping of, she's a lady, she couldn't have killed anyone. So let's talk about theories about what really happened. It was determined by the coroner that Abby had died first, sometime around 9 a.m., so probably right when she had gone upstairs. She had been hacked 19 times. 
So a little less than 40 whacks, but still one whack too many. It was determined that she was facing the attacker at first, and the first blows hit the side of her head. The force of this caused her to turn and fall to her face, which then broke her nose. The attacker kept hitting her in the back of the head. Okay, so whoever did that had to be passionately enraged. Andrew, meanwhile, was fast asleep when he was attacked. He didn't even know it happened. This was determined by the way he was positioned and the direction his eyes faced. He died at about 11 a.m. after 11 hacks to the head. Now, I've said this before and it's still true. I'm not a true crime person. It's not my cup of tea. So I'm not going to link you to the photos, but there are very graphic photos of the bodies of both Andrew and Abby. They come right up when you search, so you can take a look if you're interested. All right, so some of the reasons why Lizzie looked very suspicious. The fact that Abby was killed first was a big deal. Her dying first meant that her estate would pass to Andrew. Once Andrew died, his estate and Abby's would pass to Emma and Lizzie. So there's that. Lizzie had many discrepancies in her alibis. I will remind you again that she was literally on drugs when she gave her accounts, but things like, I took father's shoes off when his shoes are clearly still on in the pictures. Why don't you go upstairs to check for Miss Borden? And then, of course, the burning of the dress. Her excuse at the time was that she had brushed the dress against fresh paint, so she had to burn it. Anyway, the thing is, there's just as much to say she didn't do it as she did. Like, her weird behavior can be explained by intense traumatic shock and grief. Like, imagine you're out in the barn eating a pear, and the next thing you know, you're standing in a pool of your dad's blood. You'd be having a bad day, too. Then, of course, there's the morphine and the fact that they never found blood on her or any of her clothes. Although, again, they didn't really look. I've also seen speculation that there was blood on the dress, but she was burning it because it was her own blood, because she was on her period and didn't want them to get the wrong idea, because, again, all men would have been investigating. I don't know if that's true, but something I've seen floated around. There have been some wild theories over the years. Was Lizzie in a fugue state and she didn't realize she was murdering her parents? Was it Andrew Borden's illegitimate son? That one's been debunked. The likeliest suspects are John Morse, Lizzie's uncle with the overly elaborate alibi who just happened to show up the night before, or Lizzie herself for reasons we've illustrated. It could also have actually been an intruder. Remember, Andrew wasn't super well liked about town. He was a landlord and worked at a bank, not a person who people in poverty are wanting to see. There was also Bridget Maggie, who maybe was just like, just learn my name, you guys. And also, don't make me work on a hot day when I'm violently ill. Fun fact there, when Bridget Maggie died in the 1940s, she apparently told her sister that she covered up for Lizzie. One interesting theory I have heard in another podcast called Hysterical History that I thought was compelling was that there was a serial killer who murdered people with hatchets starting around 1897, so five years later. He'd ride the rails and murder entire families in their sleep, all at houses near train tracks. The guess is that he was a lumberjack traveling for work. His killing spree was five years later, but maybe the Bordens were in early crime before establishing his serial killer pattern. The fact of the matter is, there's no way that we'll ever know. Chapter 4. Lizzie's Later Years All right, so newly acquitted and minted with her father's millions, what do you think Lizzie did? Got the hell out of there for an exotic beach somewhere? Nope. She bought a mansion on the hill and she and Emma moved in. She stayed in the town where everyone believed her to be an axe murderess, which, why? She changed her name to Lizbeth and fell in with a bunch of theater people. 
she was super obsessed with theater. Like she'd go to the matinee and the late show and she'd throw lavish parties at her house. Her house, which she called Maplecroft, was also egged regularly and children would stand outside her house and sing the infamous rhyme, which you might not know has a second verse. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven, he will sing. On the gallows, she will swing. Anyway, there was an actress of some repute. She even went on to Hollywood years later, Nance O'Neill. Lizzie was obsessed with her and hung out with her all the time and threw parties in her honor. It's speculated that Lizzie may have been a lesbian and was in love with Nance. This is also a wild theory about Bridget Maggie that Lizzie and Bridget Maggie were in a relationship and got caught by Abby and that's why they as a teen killed her. Flimsy though, and it also sounds like casting her as a lesbian as some sort of bad thing or smear her, which not cool at all. Nance though, that could be legit. Lizzie wrote in a letter, I'm not sure if this was to Nance or, or another anonymous female friend, I dreamed of you the other night, but I dare not put my dreams on paper. Anyway, in 1905, Lizzie and Emma had a falling out. Emma moved out, and the sisters, who didn't die until the 1920s, never saw each other again. The speculation, of course, is that Lizzie confessed to Emma, and disgusted, Emma left. But Lizzie had thrown a big party for Nance the night before this happened. Other speculation is that Emma caught Lizzie and Nance in an embrace, or that Lizzie told Emma that she had feelings for Nance. Again, we'll never know, but Lizzie stayed on at Maplecroft until her death at age 66 from issues related to gallbladder surgery. Emma died a week later. The sisters are buried together with Andrew and Abby at Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. Lizzie left most of her money to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. Chapter 5. The Business of Lizzie Borden. All right, so that's a very abbreviated version of the story of Lizzie Borden. There's so much information out there, and all of it changes based on the presenter's idea of whether or not she was guilty. I'm trying to be neutral because I really do not have a strong opinion either way. She could easily have done it, or she could be the tragic victim of Victorian gender politics. Either way, Lizzie Borden is big business these days. You can stay at her house, which has been turned into a bed and breakfast. You can visit a Lizzie Borden museum. You can buy just about anything with her image on it on Etsy. You can see movies, TV shows, and even a Lizzie Borden opera. But here's a few things that I enjoyed while researching this case. You can find all of these linked in the show notes on my website, immortalperfumes.com backslash historical. In podcast land, Hysterical History that I mentioned before had a Lizzie Borden series that they recorded at the Lizzie Borden house. Their series definitely took the stance that Lizzie was innocent, just FYI. And I had been meaning to check out their show, and I'm so glad I did. It's Historical Women with a Side of Laughs. I'll be checking out more episodes. Criminal Broads also had an episode that I really enjoyed that deviated from your standard Lizzie Borden podcast fare. That episode, Lizzie Borden LLC, goes into the business of a true crime story like Lizzie's. There are also the usual suspects, the history chicks, and stuff you missed in history class. I think I've also talked about biographics on YouTube before. Their Lizzie Borden episode is about 20 minutes long and a good overview. That one is biased the other way, though. I got the impression that they believe she did it. All right, in terms of books, there are a few out there, but, but one I read that was really crazy and probably a good Halloween read a few years back, Maplecroft by Sherry Priest. Sherry Priest is one of my favorite authors. She's known for her steampunk novels, but she does a fair amount of horror and vampires and witches as well. I just love her. Anyway, Maplecroft is a universe in which not only is Lizzie innocent, she is the only thing standing between humanity and Cthulhu. So if you want something really crazy, pick that up. On TV, there was a Lizzie Borden episode of Supernatural. 
It was season 11, episode 5, titled Thin Lizzie, and it's an investigation to see if the ghost of Lizzie is back out there murdering people. For movies, there's a 2018 Kristen Stewart movie I haven't seen, where Stewart is Bridget Maggie and Chloe Sevigny is Lizzie, and apparently that movie is in the camp that they are lovers and Bridget Maggie helps her cover it up. Haven't seen it, so can't tell you if it's good, but it's out there. Then there's the Christina Ricci Lifetime movie, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, which was followed by a sequel TV series, The Lizzie Borden Chronicles. Dear listeners, the movie was so campy, but I loved it. Christina Ricci is perfect as Lizzie Borden, and they do a good job of kind of making it neutral until the end. That movie was probably my favorite part of researching this. Thus concludes our third annual historical Halloween Spectacular. I hope you enjoyed it. If you need more creepy, I have so many spooky Halloween episodes. Check the Halloween tag on immortalperfumes.com backslash historical. We've got Houdini, Elizabeth Bathory, Edgar Allan Poe, Marie Laveau, the ghost of Marie Antoinette, whatever you need, I've got you. My website recently switched over and Apple Podcasts is giving me grief over it. So if you have trouble listening on your favorite podcast apps, just know you can listen to all my episodes all the time for free at my website. It's been optimized for mobile, so you'll have a good time. Thank you for joining me, and I'll be back with new episodes of Storical before the end of the year. Happy Halloween, my dear listeners. (laughs) 